The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This is a clarification from our conversation with Dr. Mary Warren in the episode titled Mary Warren, Vision and Brain Injury Part 2. At 37 minutes and 28 seconds, Dr. Warren stated that we establish our preferences for lighting in our 70s. This is incorrect. We actually establish our lighting preferences in our 20s, which is why we often end up with suboptimal lighting in our 70s. She referenced an article titled The Smith Kettlewell Institute, Longitudinal Study of Vision Function and Its Impact Among the Elderly, an overview. We will give you full article details in the show notes. Now I'm recording. You got to be on your best behavior. I'll behave myself. Well, maybe. So, hey, Dad Batistella, how you doing? I'm great, Pete Levine. How are you? By the way, I posted something on my blog the other day. All of the the really good stuff with regard to the brain and music, the, all the seminal stuff, the, the first bunches of studies, and they still do it. All that research comes from Finland. Hmm. And I put up something about what kind of music would most help people that are aphasic, because we know that music can help people with Alzheimer's. It can be beneficial for people who have had a brain injury in terms of retraining gait, the timing of upper extremity function, communication outcomes, and quality of life just generally. So they tried to figure out what music would most help people that are aphasic. And in the study they did, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you're interested, what kind of music is most help people that are aphasic? So they had three groups. One listened to music with a singer singing lyrics. One listened to instrumental music, no sung lyrics. And the third was narrated audiobooks. And the winner was vocal music, the one with singing hmm. lyrics in it. That's interesting. Yeah. So if you're aphasic and you want to maybe give yourself a treatment options that you can do safely at home, listen to music that has sung lyrics, vocal lyrics, and 
maybe not like Deep Purple or I don't know Zeppelin. <laughs> that that won't do it because that's just nobody knows what he's saying. But um, maybe with real lyrics. But there was other things they suggested listening to music to help language recovery. Choose music that has sung lyrics and. The other thing they did was they interviewed the people before they put them in one of the three groups to find out exactly what music they loved. That emotional response, that emotional connection that we have to our favorite music is the important one. Mm -hmm. The dosage was an hour a day that they listened to it. So, you know, that's pretty easy. They did it for two months and they had to keep a diary because they wanted them to make sure that they stuck to it. Mm -hmm. So that's there. You can find it on my blog. That's Google. pretty cool. Google. You might have noticed a little increased traffic on your blog because that was part of a an in-class assignment what? that I had the students do the other day. Yeah. What was it to look at the blog? Well, they had to go to your blog and then find the link to the audio recordings for mental practice. Oh, good. Uh-huh. And uh, so I think somebody mentioned the music research. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about the music, I wonder if watching people sing the lyrics would be beneficial, hmm. even for people who have motor challenges, like an action observation kind of a thing. Wow. So you're doing action observation because they have dysarthria. Yeah. And they're listening to the lyrics because they have aphasia. Oh, man. I don't know. Music, pretty powerful yeah, stuff. It is powerful stuff. So did you see that thing that I posted oops, on the Noggins and Neurons Facebook group about the woman who said, um, my husband has been minimal consciousness for about four days after waking up from, from sedation today. And I blasted Black Sabbath, his favorite band, and asked him to show me the metal horns. And he, and he did. It was the first thing he he did. And, and then he did it again when she asked him to do it again. So that's mm -hmm. their first real communication. That's the power of music. That is the power of music. And that's another important point that you're bringing up here is a lot of the people that are in the TBI survivor group that I'm in, they were in a coma for a long time and they were in very bad, many were in very bad physical states and have made phenomenal recoveries. So it's very difficult. It's difficult for family members. It's difficult for care providers, the medical staff to know what's going to happen because we can't see into the future and we can't see what's going on inside of that person oftentimes. Yeah. As you know, my sister had a traumatic brain injury and um, she they had to keep her in a chemically induced coma for a while because they didn't want the pressure in her brain to Mm -hmm. to to go up and uh you know when she came out she was like stargazing for a couple weeks and then they mm -hmm. they pulled her out of it and and then uh you know a couple years of of rehab and convalescing and got a master's degree and got married and had two kids and now she has a a, a row house townhouse in in london that she owns Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so you know, you don't know. I mean, it, no. but that's kind of like life. So, you know, yeah. people, when they've had a traumatic brain injury, they literally have been reborn. Mm -hmm. And so it's a rebirth, a rebirth day. So, yeah. But yeah, I think if, if you have somebody that's sort of stargazing and isn't really coming out of it, not talking to you, I, I would say um, Black Sabbath would probably be a good way to get them out of it or whatever music they love. That, that may be so deep in there that it really gets mm -hmm. through to them. Well, and music gets to the emotional part of the brain too. So maybe that's part of it. Music is what happened 
um, to bring that guy to life that I talked about, Tom, you know, with the, he was um, pretty much comatose and unresponsive for many weeks, or he was a conductor. A con- oh, conductor, that guy. Yeah. We saw the picture of him conducting in oh, his right. room and we're like, oh my gosh, music. So we sat him up at the edge of the bed. He wasn't responding. And then I asked him what his favorite song was. He didn't answer. So he got to listen to mine and his foot started tapping. He wasn't opening his eyes, but he was in there. And then he made a complete recovery eventually. But music is, and why did it take me so many weeks to think about music and need a prompt on my own? You know, as the therapist, it would have been, I wonder if it would have been more effective sooner if I would have thought of music sooner. Maybe. Um, but at least you thought of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Tiesel talks about these priming of the brain, um, action observation, imagery, mirror therapy. I think music needs to be put in that category mm-hmm. because it just activates the whole the whole brain. Yeah, I think you're right. I wonder if you have any Facebook groups that you really like that you think would be good for either clinicians and or caregivers and or people with brain injury. I do. I need to look them up. Oh. What are your favorite Facebook groups? Well, I'll, I'll do one. Yeah, you go Let first. Me go first. So this is this is one that it feels like the entire group is absolutely on fire. Um, it's crazy. It's unpredictable. It doesn't have anything to do with rehab. It doesn't have anything to do with brain injury, but it's called Nurses Raw and Uncensored. Ooh. And nurses are like very... Nurses, as you know, are under a lot of stress now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the humor, the gallows humor, the absolutely cutting to the core, the memes, it's hilarious. And it's 61,000 nurses on there. And so Nurses Raw and Uncensored... And look, I'll put all the ones that we suggest on the show notes so you can just click on them and then join up if you want to. But I, I joined it because I just thought it might be interesting. <laughs> I'm just like the get, <laughs> guy in the, the back wall, just kind of observing people and taking notes. But I, I think it's hilarious. Although it's uh, there's a lot of like the debate about the uh, COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of nurses that don't want the COVID vaccine. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of nurses are like, you're nurses. Like <laughs> you're in healthcare. Shouldn't you be on board? Do you, you know? And so that whole, it's the microcosm of the, debate writ large across society. So so that'll be my first one. Nurses raw and uncensored. Join it and uh and and you will not be disappointed. No. Well, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook because I personally find it to be a waste of my time. And then I get annoyed with myself when I've wasted that time. Except for our group, Noggins and Neurons. I was going to say one of my favorite groups is Noggins and Neurons. Um I like, so for brain injury, I joined these two TBI groups and I I love both of them. One is called Traumatic or Acquired Brain Injury Support Group. So that's for caregivers. It's for people who need that support. And the other one is Traumatic Brain Injury Healthy Alternatives. They pursue uh, different ways of healing their brain beyond medications. And that's fascinating. And everybody's very supportive of each other in those groups. And that was called that last one. It is called traumatic brain injury, healthy alternatives. Okay. Again, we'll Mm -hmm. put all the links in the show notes. Yeah. Can I say another one? Yeah. 
do or do all of them. Along with that, there's a trauma-informed occupational therapist group that I joined because I realized how much I don't know about helping people with trauma and started learning about it when I, I don't know, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago at, due to my teaching. There's a teacher at the college who does a lot of staff education on trauma-informed practices. And it's really helpful information to have like emotional intelligence and being aware that others that we interact with may have experienced some trauma and people don't walk around saying, you know, I've experienced trauma in my life and we don't know. So if we just treat everybody with a level of respect and understanding um, and kind of with that background thought of this person may have experienced trauma in their life, uh, things go a little bit better. So what do you get out of this group? Like, give me a, an example of something that it informs you. They, they talk about different theories for treating people who've been traumatized. A lot of polyvagal types of stuff. Polyvagal? Is that like- Polyvagal. It's like vagal. a vagal. Vagal. Oh, I thought it was- a- Like the vagus nerve. <laughs> oh, okay. Polyvagal, huh? Yeah. And um, there's a great book, The Body Keeps the Score. And it's all it ties into what Don and Barb were saying about if emotions aren't processed, then the body, they will show up in the body. And that kind of work is fascinating. And I just pretty much figure that everybody has experienced trauma in their lives. And I need to learn more about how to help people and to be a kind to people when working with those people. Yeah. Um, my wife's sister uh, is a is an MD and but mid career she switched to psychiatry from just mm. being a general practitioner and she's trained in psychoanalysis and one of the things that she's told my my wife um, who has like thoracic back pain sometimes mm-hmm. it kind of comes and goes is that you know emotions that are not dealt with or whatever it is that we're talking about here can turn into back pain mm-hmm. I mean obviously you can have back pain like I met a guy the other day who fell off a roof that'll cause you back pain and but that that you know what it is but sometimes yeah back pain and it's like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. And some there, it sounds a little uh, Oprah Winfrey, but it is, it, there may be something to it. Like you say, that mm-hmm. if you're not dealing with your own emotions or if something's hitting you psychologically and your brain doesn't know where to process it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember because I get migraines, I know, I know you've had problems with them in the past and, and I, I certainly have, and have had uh, a lot of other kinds of headaches, like cluster headaches and stuff. And there was this theory, like why from an evolutionary standpoint, might headaches even exist? Like, is there a reason for them? Because if they made us less able to survive, then the people who had headaches would die off eventually. But then there was this idea that some people have suggested that headaches are a warning system against something that you're stressed about. Mm -hmm. And that it means you should lie low because that's exactly what a headache does. It makes you lie low and guide under the covers and you turn out all the lights and you just mm-hmm. burrow underground and wait for the thing that's bothering you to pass a little bit. And, um, and I know for me, there's two things that always made me realize I didn't want to stay in a job. One was if I didn't have enough time to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. and in some skilled nursing facilities that that was true. And I was like, no, nah, I can't. I can't be, you know, 90% productive. I occasionally need to go to the bathroom. The other was if it, if over and over again, I started getting headaches that usually told me something. So it's usually a pretty, pretty good indicator. Mm-hmm. So that, that last Facebook group that you were talking about, what was the name of it again? 
It's trauma-informed occupational therapist. Well, I think this is an important conversation to have for those people who are doing things that they think they have to do to make money, but those things are making them sick. And I know for me, it's a stomach ache. And I haven't had a stomach ache in a long time after leaving some areas of practice. And it's really interesting because sometimes we think we really like something, but our body is telling us something different. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I have some, the bathroom thing. I, I have some colleagues who used to joke about wearing a catheter <laughs> and I, I'm like, no, no, they can give me enough time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah. And where are you going to get a catheter in a, in a skilled nursing facility? Wow. Anywhere yeah, around any corner. <laughs> um, it's weird. As I typed in tra- just trauma informed in uh-huh. Facebook, there's trauma informed parent, trauma informed oh. educators, Trauma-Informed Educators Network, Trauma-Informed Teachers, Trauma-Informed Yoga, Trauma-Informed Care, and Trauma-Informed Occupational Therapy or Therapist. I didn't press Therapist. Yeah. You know, now that you mentioned that Trauma-Informed Yoga, I learned from the people in that Trauma-Informed OT group that you have to be careful using yoga with people who have experienced trauma because if it's a tra- or yoga will release trauma from the body and it could be too overwhelming for the person and you have to have a, a trained professional with them sometimes um, and using yoga. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this usage of mushrooms or LSD to deal with deep uh, problems? And it, the efficacy is pretty remarkable. I have. Yeah. So. I no, I would never do that. Well, <laughs> since you started that, I think so you can, you can get to a place like that through meditation. I have not achieved that ever. Although, you know, I meditate regularly and I would not be opposed to that. I think that would be a pretty cool experience. But on the other hand, since I have experienced trauma, multiple trauma in my life, I wonder if that's why I'm afraid of things like that, because I don't want to be out of control. But I have heard that um, you can use that with guidance. And if you have guidance there, if you have the person there with you, then you should be pretty safe or feel safe doing it. Yeah. I, hmm. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. Hey, I got a couple of Facebook groups. So they're okay. both stroke. So I have this friend, Elizabeth Apple, and she started two of the biggest Facebook groups. Um, she's somebody who's come to a couple of talks of mine. And, uh, you know, I always talk about these super survivors. She's one of them. And there's these people who've had brain injury and they're still way smarter than I am. And, and she's one of those. Mm-hmm. She started one called Young Stroke Survivors. And then there's some sort of, I don't know, problem within the group and she left them. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks later, I think she emailed me and she said, should I start over and start a new group? And uh, I said, I, I really think you should because you're you know, really leading people into good conversations, et cetera, et cetera. So she started another one called Young Stroke Survivors Global Network. And Young okay. Stroke Survivors, we usually talk about Young Stroke Survivors as under 65, but it's also, you know, you can have an 85-year-old who's a lot younger than a 55-year-old. It just depends on a lot of things. So both mm-hmm. of those, Young Stroke Survivors and Young Stroke Survivors Global Network. That's a, they're both large groups. Yeah. Yeah. About 8,000, mm-hmm. 9,000 in there someplace. So those are two. So if you've had a stroke, definitely. And, and, you know, because so much of what happens in stroke and happens with stroke survivors is 
kind of sort of the same as other forms of brain injury. If you've had a brain injury or, or stroke, those are good groups to, to get involved in. I often, it's usually because of the book or because of the blog. People contact me when a friend has had a stroke or when uh, their husband has had a stroke or whatever it is. And one of the first things I do is try to get them into these Facebook groups because there's so many good ideas and there's so many people that have traveled down that road so far. And because you can ask questions and you can make contacts with people. Mm -hmm. Um, So those two, Young Stroke Survivors Global Network and Young Stroke Survivors are are two good ones. There's another one that I might've told you about when we first met. I I don't know if it was you that told me about him. Somehow I stumbled on this guy's Facebook group and he was having um he was having Zoom meetings during COVID and I listened to one that was for the caregivers and that's when I started to realize how important stroke education is, stroke symptom education is to the world. Because this one woman, her loved one was having symptoms for a couple of days and she just thought it was, you know, they were having a bad moment for a couple days and then finally took this person to the hospital and they they rushed them right in. But, um, you know, and then the guilt that people experience following something like that. But I don't, I cannot, the heck is his name? Okay, kids, as long as we're going over talking about stroke symptoms, <laughs> um, remember, be fast. So it was fast, face, arm, speech, and time, face, You ask them to smile, only one side of the mouth comes up, arms, hold them straight out in front of them, and one starts to drift. One of the arms drifts. Speech, um, you know, you have them say, repeat after me, I live in Cincinnati on Smith Street. And and then time is TPA, get them into the hospital. But they've added other ones, and it can be a lot of things. Uh, It it certainly can be vision, and balance is the other big one. So, Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, do that. Know those. Christopher Ewing. Is that his name? Yes. Life After Stroke. And that's a Facebook group? That's a YouTube channel. So he's got thestrokechannel.tv. Hang on. This is a whole website, thestrokechannel.tv, providing helpful information and support for stroke survivors and caregivers. Yeah, he was a motivational speaker, TV host, producer, and he shares his story about stroke. And so how he, do we find this? I just, just Google Christopher Ewing, stroke survivor. I am not finding him in Facebook. Maybe he's not in Facebook, but thestrokechannel.tv. Strokechannel.tv. Mm-hmm. Oh tons of information here. You know, speaking of stroke symptoms, sometimes confusion is a sign of stroke too. Absolutely. I think it may be thestrokechannel.tv. Could that be it? No, maybe it's not. It is thestrokechannel.tv. Isn't that what I said? I thought you said stroke channel. Oh, I don't know. Sorry. Wow. This thing is huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thestrokechannel.tv. How about that? Yeah. Okay. There's another good one. I got a few more. Okay. What do you got? I think you know about these neuro OT. You know about Mm -hmm. that one. I do. Those people are active and they know what they're talking about. And they've been kind of friends of of the show. I think we've met some people that we've interviewed uh, over there. Neuro collaborative professionals. Mm-hmm. Those guys are cool. They are cool. Um, you know, neuro OT is like 14,000 and neuro collaborative professionals is 
about 4,000. There's another one, neuro, neuro-specialized physical therapy. It's a couple of thousand. Um, this is not a neuro-specific group, but it's it's the geriatric OTPT and speech collaborative group. That's They got 40,000. Oh, those, that's big. It's a large group and there's always good information shared in that group. It's easy to ask a question in that group and people will, will respond. Physical therapist assistant professionals. Oh, how there. about that? Do they allow PTs in that group? No. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, happy PT month to all of the PTs and PTAs. Yes, it, yes, yeah. it is true. There is a neuroscience group that I like a lot. Ooh. Um, and a lot of these are quite international. So, you know, it's interesting seeing all the it goes back and forth. It's uh, the neuroscience group and mm-hmm. they get 80,000 people. And I've put, you know, a couple of reminders to come over to Noggins and Neurons, and I'm not sure anybody of them ha- any of them have, but uh, that'd be a hmm. good group of people to have on our, our Facebook group, I think. See what you think of that one. Oh, what a pretty brain. Wow. 83,000 people. Yeah. This looks pretty interesting. Well, Deb, as you know, I have a blog. You can find it by Googling Stronger After Stroke blog, and it'll be the first hit. There is a link on there. It looks like a little flash drive. It's called Seminar Stuff. If you click on that, there's so much stuff on there that I've collected, how to find free research. Just really quickly, the number of repetitions that are done in order to change the brain, that all those things are in there. There's a category called treating. And under treating, there's ESTEM, rhythmic bilateral arm training, bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing, rhythmic bilateral leg training, mirror therapy, increasing walking speed, constraint-induced therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ESTEM one, for instance, I found this website that shows you where to put the electrodes and a quick, it's only one minute vignettes for every muscle group in the body. So there's all kinds of cool stuff, reduction of spasticity and more stuff about spasticity, a lot for researching clinical guidelines from around the world. So the United States has um, the VA and the uh, Department of Defense, Mm -hmm. and then just the United States clinical guidelines. So if you want to know what you should be doing as a clinician, these kind of guide you, but also New Zealand, UK, Australia, and Scotland is on there. Uh, Let's see. Here's the evidence-based review of brain injury. Yeah. Oh, you've got a lot of stuff on here. Yeah. You just collect them over time. Mm-hmm. How to produce BDNF. Remember brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is secreted by the brain into the brain uh, in order to help you learn just about anything. How it's brought about by resistance exercise, aerobic. So there's links to all that stuff. Yeah. That's really cool. So the students were asking me the other day, or just about finishing up neuro interventions. And I gave them an overview of some of those older sensory motor approaches. And we talked about how some of those evidence-based interventions are not always seen in clinics just because I wanted to prepare them for field work because there's it's a little disappointing for students when they go out in the field and they don't see what they learned in school. And they were asking me, why? Why is that? And I just told them what I told you the other day when I realized that we have to sometimes unlearn what we've already learned and then 
open ourselves up to the newer, um, the research, and then give ourselves the space to learn it. And that's why a lot of times clinicians like having students because they bring that research with them. And I suggested that they do like a talk for their fieldwork sites on some of the newer interventions and help them create a little program so that it's not so much work for a clinician to start that on their own. I think they'll do it. I think one of my clinicals, I had to do it. I remember it being a big deal. It was at a hospital. Mm -hmm. I always tell them, even if your site doesn't require it, you should do it anyway. I demand to do it. I want your lunch. I have thought about um, making it a requirement for field work. Most sites do require it though. You know, the lag time between when something's proven and, and when it gets into clinical practice Bob Tiesel said he thought it might be generational mm-hmm. between bench and bedside. But I have to say, that, so the neural book that we use, and I think it's the Schmitz and O'Sullivan one. I think that's the one. In, in our PTA program, yeah, I'm on a co-author on three of the articles that are referenced in there. But Ed Taub has a, a whole chap oh. where he explains constraint-induced therapy, soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. So I think it's bleeding into it, mm-hmm. but of course we didn't go over that chapter. So we may maybe one little last hurdle oh, yeah. to go in, into it. Well, there's limited time too. We know that there is, and and you know, as you've been pointing out, there's going to be stuff that they know is going to be on their licensure exam, mm-hmm. and that stuff has to be hit. It does, and. Sometimes you get the sense that the committee that puts the questions in is leaning one way and not the other. Mm-hmm. So maybe it will be a generational shift. Maybe that's the generational shift that T cell was talking about. That who's asking the questions for the licensure exam? And uh, you know, people get old and they retire. Mm-hmm. And and then new people come in and they look at things a different way. So yeah. Yeah. So can we talk about the um the need for explicit communication on the part of the care partners for people with brain injury? Do tell. Well, you know, being able to state exactly how you're feeling and why. I think that could be challenging for the general public because I don't always walk around thinking about how I'm feeling or and then have to think about why I might be feeling that way. So it's like a new level of thinking and awareness for the care partners too. Mm. It seems like some work. Yeah. Along with everything else that they mm-hmm. have to deal with. Yeah. So maybe um, they should have a plan to cut themselves some slack time. Yeah. But life doesn't allow a lot of slack time. Well, I and know. Your loved one's there and they, they're demanding something and somebody gets angry, but you don't see they're upset. And yeah. I bet it, it's tough day to day. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important, recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. 
I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's stronger after stroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right. So next week, as you know, Jenica Colvin, Suzanne McCrum, it's Trio Rehab down in Texas. So they're coming on. And then then the Sarah Beller folks yes. from Johns Hopkins, mm-hmm. as well as Stephen Heim, the mm-hmm. emergency care nurse who had a Sarah Beller stroke and has cerebellar ataxia and still going to school and working and, you know, kicking butt and taking names, but he has trouble walking and doing some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to that one. That's, that's yeah. going to be crazy cool. I am too. And then we have one more. Dr. Beck is a high powered MD cardiologist who was like the director of everything up in your neck of the woods. Somewhere near Buffalo, right? Yeah, he's about an hour away in Rochester, New York. Bradford Beck, and he was the the one who tried to avoid um, having a worse accident when he was bicycling and and tried to pull off this thing where you, you fall down on your side and go under the car so you don't hit the full brunt of the car. And, and maybe it worked and maybe it didn't work, but he knew immediately he had a very high level spinal cord injury. And he wrote this book very recently about how it is that clinicians can, how clinicians maybe don't understand nearly as much as they think they do about these pathologies that they work with. This is the other thing is Stephen Heim, who had, who was an acute care nurse. He taught these scales for recognizing stroke. I mean, he was a teacher as well. And that's the first question I'm going to ask him is not, you know, how are you doing with your walking? I want to know how his understanding of what physical disabilities are now that he's, as you call it, has had the lived experience. Because I really think the clinicians, you know, we we do stuff like, you know, we wear a fat suit to see how it feels, or we put a rock in our shoe to see what an antalgic gait feels like, or we walk with a cane to see how people act. But that's not the same. That's like, um, you know, I remember my kids were going to pretend to be homeless for a night. It was part of a school project and they slept in a box. You're, you know, rich parents or live right down the street. It's not the same until it becomes truly the lived experience. So that's what Dr. Burke is going to talk to us about and Stephen Heim. What is the, the lived experience and how is it not correct a lot of the assumptions that um, that clinicians make. That's going to be a good one. Yeah, both of those are. Mm-hmm. Yes, they both are going to be. All three, actually. Yeah, every damn episode is going to be excellent. I know it. Right
So uh, kids, uh, you can donate to Nuggets and Neurons. There's a QR code on the Podbean website. You can just scan it. And also there's a Venmo that you can do it. It's at Neurons is our address or whatever you call it. And, and thank you to all of you who have been donating. We yes, appreciate it. It's very nice. And remember, 20% goes to the Brain Injury Association of America. Brain Injury Association of America. <laughs> Um, 20% of it goes to that if you if you donate a little bit and it have to be a lot, be a little bit. In some ways, it's like just showing in a, a little bit of appreciation if you're getting something out of it. Yeah. And, and don't forget to join the Facebook group. That'll be helpful too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so yeah, good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Remember SC? Yeah. <laughs> So our first uh, noggins and neurons uh, mm-hmm. Facebook uh, person. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of put her on the spot right there on the podcast when I was saying maybe she'll want to come on the show. She's from Bedfordshire. <laughs> and I did ask her if she wants to come on the show and she doesn't want to. She's not ready for that yet. Okay. But And that's cool. I get that because I wasn't really ready for it either. I'm still not ready. When I, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I asked her about her, um, like how her practices changed. And so she did write us an email and tell us about that. So maybe in a future episode, we can share her thoughts about um, and her experience about how the podcast is helping to shape her practice differently. Yeah. She did mention that it was helping it, especially Mm -hmm. for the upper extremity. Yeah. Mm. And you don't want to share it on this episode because... I don't know. It's almost nine o'clock. Okay. Do you want me to? Nah. Okay. Let's there. We 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 have an endpoint. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about quite a few things, and I don't want her story to get lost in all of the other topics that we talked about. Okay, good. That's a good idea. And don't forget to, if you want to, join the Facebook group. That'll be helpful too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so yeah, good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Try to have some fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.